0: Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about the war in Myanmar. Why is one of the world's worst crises getting so little attention?
1: In some parts of the country, it's getting more violent. There's a growing resistance from the People's Defence Force and ethnic armed groups. The military is accused of torturing communities to crush dissent. civilians
0: in airstrikes. So in February 2021, the Myanmar military seized power. That ended what had been a slow, often frustrating, but seemingly genuine transition over the previous decade towards more open politics. The coup was triggered by elections some months earlier, in which the National League for Democracy, a party headed by Aung San Suu Kyi, had cleaned up the vote had threatened to tip the balance of power between civilians and the military firmly towards civilians. In anger at the coup, people took to the streets of cities and towns across the country. they met a brutal military crackdown and since then protests have morphed into armed resistance. Local rebel groups, known as People's Defence Forces, are fighting the army across parts of the Myanmar countryside. Some of the ethnic armed groups that have been battling the Myanmar state for decades from border areas have joined forces with these new resistance units. Other ethnic groups have sat out the fighting. China's foreign minister is warning of a spillover of violence from Myanmar to other parts of the region. Jin Gang is stressing the importance of maintaining clear and stable borders and calling for a crackdown on cross-border crime. Now, the foreign minister spoke on a rare visit to Naypyidaw. Mr. Qin met yesterday with military chief Minong Lai. The talks come amid mounting international criticism as fighting intensifies between the army and pro-democracy forces. For the most part, foreign powers, including China, Western governments and Myanmar's Southeast Asian neighbors have opposed military rule. Of major powers, only Russia has thrown its weight behind the junta. But diplomatic efforts to end the crisis have gone nowhere. Mostly they've been left to the regional bloc, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations or ASEAN. Despite the recent visit of the Chinese foreign minister to Nepidor. The Myanmar capital that we just heard about, it's fair to say that the crisis has been quite low down on the list of priorities for most capitals, given everything else going on. So, is there an end in sight to the crisis? And why isn't the potential collapse of a state in the heart of Asia attracting more global attention? To talk about all this, I am delighted to welcome back onto the podcast Richard Horsey, who is one of Crisis Group's Myanmar experts. Richard, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me again.
0: So, Richard, could you first give us a sense of what the fighting looks like?
1: I mean, since the coup more than two years ago, there's been a significant uptick in fighting in Myanmar. You've got many of the old ethnic armed groups, some of whom were in ceasefires, others fighting. But you've had this whole wave of resistance, this revolution that the coup has unleashed across the country and including among the Burma majority. And so there are hundreds of different groups that have been established in different places, in cities, but particularly in rural areas, who are determined to fight back against the military and uh, unseat them from power. And that resistance takes different forms. There continues to be very brave, non-violent resistance, but there's also an armed resistance that's taken hold. Groups of people who've you know, initially had a few homemade weapons some IEDs that they've made themselves, you know, getting more sophisticated now. We have drones being used to drop uh, munitions on Myanmar military targets. We have 3D printing guns in some cases in the border areas. But also, these groups have started to access uh, regional weapons markets, either directly or via uh, ethnic armed group partners. And so we've seen that many of these groups have got more sophisticated weapons assault rifles, rocket-propelled grenades, the kind of thing that you need to take on a military on the ground, a well-equipped military, and have a chance of coming out ahead. So that kind of resistance is happening in many different places, not, not everywhere in the country, but in a number of different hotspots around the country, and there continues to be a societal wide determination not to allow uh, the military to win this.
0: And although, Richard, the determination, as you say, to not allow the military to win is society-wide, how much are the different activities of the resistance groups, how much are they coordinated or centrally directed?
1: So the political resistance is uncontested. The National Unity Government, the NUG, uh, which was established after the coup, uh, made up both of National For democracy, parliamentarians who were ousted in the coup, but also representatives of ethnic armed groups, representatives of civil society, Uh, that is the peak resistance political body. That has uncontested authority, but it is essentially a political body. It did announce an armed struggle, does have some People's Defence Force units under its command that it's been arming and training with the help of ethnic armed groups. But most of these post-coup resistance groups were formed bottom-up by communities, by young people who were angry at the violence that the regime was unleashing against peaceful protesters. Uh, And most of those groups are operating more or less autonomously. They all share the same broad objective of unseating the military, but they're not under a unified chain of command. And, you know, in one sense, that's an advantage. It means it's very hard for the regime to disrupt that chain of command. There isn't, you know, key nodes that they can take out that will just uh, cause the resistance to collapse. But on the other hand, uh, if these groups want to move beyond, local skirmishes, local operations in their area to be able to take on larger formations of the Myanmar military, to be able to go for larger strategic targets, military bases. That obviously needs a level of manpower, firepower, and coordination that currently is very difficult, I think, for those post-coup resistance groups.
0: Richard, I remember we must have spoken in the early stages of the sort of post-coup period. And back then, there was a lot of violence in urban areas. There were the protests and then crackdowns by the junta, by the military. But now it seems the violence has shifted not only sort of out of the cities, but even out of the smaller towns as well. It's really a sort of rural, as you say, not coordinated, but a rural uprising. Is that right?
1: I mean, many of the people involved in this uprising are people from the towns and cities, but the places where it's most feasible to mount an armed resistance is either in areas or near areas controlled by these old ethnic armed groups, because there you have safety, there you, can, you have a rear support base, there you can get training and access to weapons or it's in some of these new resistance areas, which are, which are mostly rural areas. It's very hard to take and hold a town because it becomes a target for the regime, for airstrikes, for artillery, and for ground assaults. So it's much more effective for these groups to be operating in rural areas where they can melt away into the villages, they can melt away into the forests, and then come back at another time and in another place. Uh, so it's that kind of insurgency. Um, the, the, the cities aren't peaceful. But the resistance has had difficulty consolidating its activities in the cities. So you have uh, resistance and underground groups are operating in the cities, conducting assassinations, conducting hit-and-run attacks, uh, bombings against regime targets, these kinds of things. Um, but they haven't been able to uh, to do what they hoped to be able to do early on, which was to really sort of take control of towns or or, or parts of cities.
0: And I want to come a little bit later to the relationship between some of the resistance groups and the ethnic armed groups. But, I mean, tell us a little bit about if you're in an area where the resistance forces are active, what does the fighting actually look like?
1: I mean, I think the most obvious area where this is happening is in the dry zone. Uh, It's the northern central part of the country. As the name suggests, it's quite arid. It's a very uh, traditional kind of farming communities, quite low lying land, mostly rivers and farming fields. This is just north of the capital, Nypidor. It's north north and west north and west of Mandalay. If you think of the centre of Myanmar being the Irrawaddy Valley, it's kind of the northwestern part of this, to the northwest of the main Irrawaddy River. So this is an area between the Irrawaddy River and the mountains to the west of the country that eventually reach India. And so, yeah, it's an old Bamar majority area. It's a relatively well-to-do area. Old farming villages, old farming families. They've been making a lot of money in recent years growing things like cash crops, watermelons for the Chinese market, for example. So this area the resistance dominates across much of this landscape a very large area in the sense that it's very difficult for the Myanmar military to go there unless they're in kind of combat formation. If they drive into these areas along the roads, they're going to get ambushed, they're going to get hit by IEDs, you know, they're going to take casualties. Uh, And so they can still go into these areas, they can go more or less where they want, but only in battle formation. And what they've been doing over the last couple of years is not really trying to win this area back they haven't thrown the full force and firepower of the Myanmar military into retaking these areas instead they have been conducting punishment attacks they've been sending in bands of well-armed soldiers maybe a hundred strong who've been roving around the landscape burning villages attacking uh, resistance bases beheading people
0: So actually going in and beheading people they suspect of being
1: rebels or people suspected of helping them? Exactly. And just random civilians they come across who've been unable to flee villages. So it's really a deliberate campaign of atrocities to uh, bring the cost of this resistance to the civilian population. This is an old tactic of the Myanmar military. It's called the four cuts approach. You battle insurgents, not by fighting the insurgents head-on, but by undermining their support base in local communities.
0: Richard, just so people understand, do you want to just explain the four cut strategy?
1: Yeah, it's called the four cuts strategy because it involves cutting food, funds, intelligence, and recruits the four things that the Myanmar military has assessed any insurgency needs in order to survive. And so rather than just you know going into open battle against your foes, you try and reduce their power by attacking the civilian population, basically. If you want to think about it in international humanitarian law terms, it's a, it's a strategy of deliberately targeting the civilian population in order to weaken the rebels. So they're punishing. They're using artillery, they're using airstrikes, they're using these roving bands of soldiers to attack villages, burn villages, kill civilians, and kill fighters, resistance fighters, when they can find them. And maybe worth pointing
0: out that these areas, these are the heartlands of the Bamar majority. Myanmar, of course, is no strangers to wars, as, as you talked about, but mostly in its border areas where the ethnic armed groups have battled successive governments. But the areas you're talking about now, they've not seen this type of fighting before.
1: No, that's right. And so communities are not prepared for it. They don't have the coping strategies that communities in more war-affected, conflict-affected areas have developed over decades. And so they've been paying a very heavy price.
0: And Richard, I know that according to the UN, about 1.3 million people have been displaced internally uh, inside Myanmar since the coup. But do we sort of have a sense at all of the number of people that have been killed due to the
1: fighting? It's very hard to get an accurate sense because most of the attacks are not fully reported. You can't get journalists in there. The regime doesn't claim civilian casualties. It it tends to ignore that. But, you know, there are third-party analytical organizations who try to collect data and have shown that several thousand civilians have been killed in these areas since the coup They acknowledge the reality is it's likely to be much higher. For combatants, it's very hard to know the death toll because, as in many conflicts, wild claims are made about casualties. These are very difficult, if not impossible, to verify in many cases. But clearly, thousands of people have been killed in combat as well, combatants. So this is a a civil war by any definition.
0: And so we talked a little bit about the cities and then the smaller towns and the rural areas. Is there any way to gauge sort of, you know, I know it's a very difficult question to answer sometimes, but is there any way to gauge how people feel about the violence? Is the anger at what's happening still mostly directed towards the regime? Or is it now that people are, you know, are tiring of the fighting and less sympathetic to the resistance than they might have been, you know, a year ago, some months ago?
1: It's, of course, a very difficult context in which to sort of gauge sentiment in any rigorous way. So, All of this has to be kind of anecdotal. But I think from talking to different people, different organizations, you know, it's clear that people are shocked by the levels of violence that the regime has unleashed. I think this was unexpected, particularly to many people in the Burma heartland who haven't experienced these levels of violence and and who often, you know, had difficulty believing in the past that this level of violence was being perpetrated in the civil conflicts people who had great difficulty believing the stories that the Rohingya told in 2017 of the mass killings and and their violent expulsion to Bangladesh. Well, now Bama, majority people in the cities and in the heartland are seeing this with their own eyes. and I think that's come as a shock, but it's also unleashed a lot of anger and determination not to allow this situation uh, to stand. So, yes, I'm sure some people feel that this is a terrible burden to bear, But by and large, I think the sentiment is one of anger, anger directed at the regime and renewed determination rather than any kind of feeling that, oh, well, perhaps we should just accept the situation and, you know, go along with it. It's hard to find that sentiment.
0: Richard, tell me if this is wrong, but I mean, it seems unlikely that the regime's grip on power seems pretty stable, for now at least, unless there's, you know, we'll talk about some of the dynamics within the military in a moment, I and mean, it seems unlikely that the resistance forces, whatever their degree of determination, are going to actually be able to oust the the, the junta. Uh, on the other hand, it doesn't seem likely, from what you've said, that the junta will be able to completely eradicate resistance forces. But is it somehow, we'll talk about the sort of strategy of the regime in a moment and the move towards elections, but is this sort of I mean, is, does it does it see the geographically focused violence, that this is something that can it can sustain for a long time?
1: I think it's important to understand that Myanmar is a country that has been in a state of conflict, or parts of it have been in a state of conflict for 70 years, since the Second World War. And so this is a country that hasn't known a day of peace throughout its territory since then. And it's therefore a military uh, that is... Quite comfortable. I mean, even takes it as the normal situation that there are parts of the country where it can't go, that it doesn't control, which are in open rebellion. So their mindset is not, uh, you know, we've lost control of, of a big chunk of the country. This is unsustainable. We must get it back quickly. Otherwise, you know, something catastrophic is going to happen. It's just an evolution of the kind of conflict map that they've seen for decades. And This one's probably more serious, but it isn't, uh, you know, radically different in kind. And so, um, you know, I think they believe the regime that time is on their side. I think they believe that these young people who, you know, transition from being demonstrators on the streets to being members of these uh, myriad armed resistance groups, that they don't really have the fortitude to continue this over the medium term, that their sources of funding will dry up, that the, the, the sources of funding within the country, but also in the diaspora. And that eventually people will tire of this as well. And so they believe that time is on their side. What we've seen from the last two, two and a half years is that that amount of time has not apparently made any impression on the determination of people to resist. If anything, we've seen even greater determination. So that's the real question now going forward. To what extent is the regime going to be able to kind of tire out this resistance? Or to what extent is Myanmar now in a new normal, um, something that it hasn't really experienced before of, of open rebellion, not just in the upland areas, the ethnic minority areas, but in big chunks of the heartland as well? The resistance certainly is aware of, of, of some of the limitations, that it doesn't have the military capability to march on Napidor and take over you know, against a, a very well-armed military. But they hope that something else will give, that there'll be some sort of economic crisis or divisions within the military, an internal split or internal coup or, or something. Something will happen to change the calculus. Um, it's not very clear, though, what that will be.
0: And so that's the military side. On the political side, the junta has been talking about moving to elections. I mean, this was always the idea that after the coup, they said there was going to be an election. But they want an election that leads to a government that is pliant, that that is under military control. There was signs that were going to be elections sometime this year that, that looks less likely now. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that's played out?
1: Sure. And the Myanmar military has a long history of kind of wanting elections. It has no uh, attachment to democracy, but elections have always loomed large in its consciousness, whether that was, you know, after the coup in 1988, uh, they announced and actually did hold elections in 1990. They announced soon after this 2021 coup that they were going to hold elections uh, as well. And I think that is their plan A, that is their exit strategy, that they kind of Crush the resistance, they hold elections in a way that's to their liking with the political parties that they're comfortable with competing on a playing field that they control, uh, and then you move to a quasi democracy.
0: And so, where do the election preparations stand now?
1: So, the regime has said it wants to hold elections, it's said that will be the pathway back to the 2008 constitution. This clearly won't include Dorong Sensuchi or the NLD, the NLD's been banned. After refusing to play along with the new rules, Aung San Suu Kyi is in prison. So, you know, this will be an election of parties that the regime is comfortable with. Initially, that looked like it was going to happen later this year, but the regime backed away from that in February, uh, and it now looks like they are in no hurry. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is just the security situation in the country, which would make it very difficult to hold anything like the polling that that was seen in previous elections. But I think if the regime really wanted to, they could find a way. They would massively reduce the number of polling stations. They'd host them in secure areas like military bases. You know, they'd make a show of an election. But the real reason, I think, that they have not moved forward is that Min Lang, the commander-in-chief, the coup leader, he's not comfortable in his position uh, if he opens things up to elections. He's not worried about public will being expressed. He's worried about what the other generals are thinking and whether he'll be able to control the situation after those elections. Because the reality is he's not seen in the military as a kind of genius, as, as someone you know who's been able to achieve what none of the other military top brass could achieve. He's in in fact seen as a you know a rather boring indecisive and not that inspiring an individual but he's the guy who did the coup he's holding the poison chalice no one else really wants to take that off him uh, but they also don't want him to be dictator for life and so for anyone who's waiting in the wings who has political aspirations the elections will be a very good opportunity for them to kind of muscle in and get positions
0: and um tell me if this is right, but part of the challenge for Ming Online, the Junta leader, is that the constitution, which the military drafted some years ago and has no interest in changing, has strong protections for the military, it has set aside seats in parliament and other protections, but it also vests quite a bit of power in the president, and to some degree in a parliamentary speaker. And today, if Ming Online moves towards elections, he can't continue to monopolize power, he has to share it even if it's with someone who's in the military or blessed by the military.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, Milong Hlaing can only hold one of those posts. If he continues as commander-in-chief, he's got to find a proxy president who'll do what he tells him. And There's no guarantee that once you're sitting in the presidential chair with the presidential seal and all the powers of that office that you will necessarily defer uh, to to the commander-in-chief. And if he takes the presidency, then he's got to contend with another commander-in-chief who, again, as the head of the most powerful institution in the country, won't have to do what the president tells him. So unless he can work that out, unless he can find people who he really trusts and get rid of some of the top people who are currently looking like they would get one of those top spots, he's in a bind he's going to have his all-powerful position diminished. And I think that's, that's what he's not comfortable about. And that's why he doesn't want to move to elections just yet.
0: Though that doesn't sound like a problem he can necessarily resolve in six months or even a year, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not clear that six months more or a year more is going to make him a dramatically better chess player, nor is it going to deal with his opponents the main challenge he has is his deputy in the military, the vice commander-in-chief. Both of them were appointed back in 2010. Um, you know, neither is going to just leave because the other one tells them to, uh, and so unless he can force or or, or or arrange the retirement of his deputy, the deputy will take over if he becomes president, uh, and they don 't have a great relationship, and in fact, his deputy, if anything, has more of a power base within the military as a as a kind of respected soldier so yeah it 's a difficult challenge, and unless he can find a, a way around this, he is a bit stuck at the same time. the status quo might be good for him; he has full powers. But it's not necessarily good for the institution of the military. And the institution of the military, I think, wants to return back to its constitution, wants a more predictable form of rule, doesn't want this kind of emergency rule that gets renewed every six months. That's not really a basis for continuing. And they probably want him out and some younger blood rising through the ranks. And so the institutional incentives of the military are diverging from Min Ong personal objectives. And that's where his challenge lies.
0: So if we come then to the National Unity Government, which, you know, as you said, formed of lawmakers, including NLD, National League for Democracy lawmakers, some of those that were ousted in the coup, plus civil society figures, others. Now it's based mostly outside of the country, though it doesn't call itself a government in exile. Some of its leaders are in areas controlled by some of the ethnic armed groups. How would the National Unity Government's leaders articulate their strategy for reversing military rule?
1: A lot of what the NUG does and says is aspirational. You know, it talks about victory being close. It talks about coordinating an armed resistance that will topple the regime. It talks about the alliances that it's building with some of the old ethnic armed groups that will give it greater power and, and, and leverage. It talks about new constitutional arrangements that it's helping to draft. Um, and it talks about its legitimacy uh, in the international community as well. These aspirational aspects are very important. They give hope and momentum to the movement. They give hope to people, but they are not a substitute for a plan. And the reality is, I think, they have limited options. They do have a lot of popularity as the kind of beacon of democratic hopes of the of the majority of the country. They are the legitimate rulers' government of the country, but they are going to have an enormous challenge in taking on the Myanmar military on the battlefield. And they're going to have an enormous challenge uh, internationally in really getting countries and institutions to recognize them as the government, not just as recognize their legitimacy, but to actually deal with them as a government. That's been something they've spent a lot of effort on pushing. But at the end of the day, whoever controls the ports and the airports, the borders, the police the military the institutions the visa stamps you know that's who people are going to have to deal with and that's a great frustration not only to the nug but to the people across the country who don't want to see the regime accorded that kind of legitimacy
0: you spoke earlier about the ties between the national unity government to some of the resistance forces in different parts of the country but what prospects does the unity government have of building some sort of united front against the regime that is that is sort of more powerful that involves not just the resistance forces but but actually some of the big ethnic armed groups as well.
1: So I think there's been quite a lot of progress in building a kind of political united front because the majority of the Burman population is behind the NUG because the NUG includes uh, quite a lot of ethnic representatives because. Most people in the country share the same view, that the military is a corrosive force that ultimately needs to be removed from power. And so as a political coalition, I think there has been quite strong success. But I think from a military perspective, it's very much harder. It's one thing to all agree on the ousting of the military. It's another thing to agree on combining military forces and putting those forces under a single chain of command. I mean, the bottom line is the ethnic armed organisations. Most of them have been in this struggle for decades. They've developed, you know, great skills, great experience, and paid a great price for their uh, struggle over the decades. They're not about to put themselves under the command of, you know, Bama politicians who have no experience of war fighting and no real understanding of how this all works. And that's because of the difference in in in, in skills and, and and experience. But it's also the legacy of mistrust that Bamar politicians have never really kept their promises to minority peoples. They've reached out to minority armed groups when they needed them at times of political turmoil in the center. But when they didn't need them, when there wasn't political crisis in the center, you know, they've forgotten those ethnic armed groups and political groupings. And so there's, there's a legacy of distrust. And I think that distrust goes very deep and it's still really there. So it's going to be almost impossible for the NUG to convince multiple ethnic armed groups to kind of come under their chain of command. It's also going to be difficult to convince the resistance forces who've been fighting on their own, raising their own funds, solving their own problems with what they see as very little help from anybody else, to convince them to come under a chain of command that that they don't really recognize and don't have much experience with, you know, it's a tall order.
0: Although the national unity government, from what I understand, has been much friendlier to Myanmar's many ethnic groups than the Bauma majority has traditionally
1: been, right? Yeah, I mean, they've definitely made progress. And I think there is a new political reality in Myanmar after the coup that there is for, you know, more or less the first time, an understanding, particularly among the younger generation, that they have to put aside the prejudices of the past. They have to build a new politics of inclusion. Um, And, you know, in those demonstrations on the front lines in Yangon, when people were demonstrating, there were people of all ethnicities. There were people from all parts of the country uh, who were there, you know, in the city as traders or as students or working. And that did forge, I think, a great deal of solidarity. uh, And that's, hopefully going to be a great bonus for Myanmar in the future. So that is a positive story. But I think it still takes a, a great deal for ethnic elites to kind of not only trust Bamar elites, but also support their cause. You know, the ethnic groups have their own cause. They want autonomy in their areas. They want self-rule. Uh, they don't share the objective of toppling the military they don 't want to march on napidor and, and take over the country they want to control their own areas so you know that that kind of objective is is different between the the resistance forces whose whole raison d'etre is to unseat the military uh, and the armed groups who've been fighting for autonomy not for not for political change at the center
0: and the ethnic armed groups from what I understand some have lent their support to resistance forces some have used it as an opportunity to step up attacks against the army but others have in essence sat it out and instead sought to strengthen their position through negotiations with the regime.
1: That's right. And, you know, for some of the big armed groups, for example, the United Wa State Army in Shan State.
0: This is one of the biggest rebel groups in the world, right? Thousands, some 25,000 people up by the Chinese border, in essence,
1: controlling a big chunk of Myanmar. Exactly. It's a, it's a sort of state lit. It's extremely well armed, as you say, 25 or 30,000 soldiers. Uh, and so this is a very powerful group. It's also been involved in all kinds of. Licit and illicit economic activities. Uh, it's really spread its wings after the coup. It's seen that the Myanmar military has been distracted. It's been focused elsewhere and the WAR have used this to really spread their influence and their territorial control across a much wider area uh, of Shan state. Um, and along with that has come, you know, a boost in illicit activities as well, whether that's, you know, mining activities, whether that's, uh, casinos and money laundering, uh, all, all kinds of, of things.
0: And why have some armed groups gone sort of one way and others gone another way? Is there a sort of common pattern to how those decisions have been taken?
1: I think each ethnic armed group has looked at its own situation, its own objectives, and thought about what is the best way for it to take advantage of the current situation to achieve its 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 aims. And for some, uh, they are sensitive to Myanmar public opinion. For some of those groups, they've always seen that they were not going to win autonomy just through fighting in the mountains, that eventually there would have to be a political settlement. They're not interested in central political power, but they do realize they have to convince any central political power to grant them uh, the autonomy that they seek. And so they also understand that that's a political question, that if they want federalism or autonomy, you know, the Bamar majority population is going to have to agree to that at some point. And so some of these groups don't want to be on the wrong side of public opinion, and therefore they felt they have to help these post-coup resistance groups with some arms, with some training, or even with some political support. Other groups, particularly, uh, for example, the groups on the Chinese border, they are very close to to, to China. Uh, They're old allies of the China Communist Party. They know that Beijing's number one priority is not having fighting on its border. But also, they don't feel that they rely on Myanmar public opinion to get some future federal agreement. They're trying to achieve that by strength of arms and and creating facts on the ground. And they've been very successful at that over the last decades. The Arakan army in the west, in Rakhine state, has a similar objective. Uh, It has been uh, fighting the the Myanmar military in recent years. But for the last few years, including after the coup, it's been in a, a ceasefire. And it sees that as the best way it can leverage the current situation. It's putting down administrative routes. It's taking more control of territory. It's making it more and more difficult in the future for the Myanmar military to come and kick out the Arakan army. So they see their uh, objective as being served by a ceasefire at the current time.
0: And Richard, before we move to the international politics, could you say a word or two about what's happened to the Rohingya? You know, I think, as most listeners will know, hundreds of thousands still in Bangladesh, having been forced out of uh, Myanmar in 2017 and earlier, but still hundreds of thousands also in Myanmar itself, in Rahin State, which you just mentioned.
1: Obviously, the coup was a terrible uh, event for the Rohingya. I mean, this was the military that was the architect of their violent expulsion of the genocide against them, now having full control in the country. So putting far back the prospects of any voluntary repatriation. Also, for those Rohingya who are still in Rakhine State, you know, the violence after the coup brought back memories of, of their treatment uh, in 2017, 2018. Um, but you know, under the Arakan army, most Rohingya feel they have a slightly better situation than they did under the Myanmar military. The Arakan army does not see them as its main enemy. Most Arakan army soldiers are not particularly well disposed towards the Rohingya, but they realize that your enemy's enemy is, uh, if not your friend, then at least someone you need to do business with. And so, you know, for many Rohingya living in northern Rakhine state, in areas where the Arakan army has influence, they found they have more freedoms than they ever did under the military. So life isn't good, and the prospects of repatriation, of voluntary repatriation, are very bad. But... Life in northern Rakhine has not got much worse as a result of the Arakan Army's greater influence. Um, where it has got worse is the recent cyclone, Cyclone Mocha, which hit Rakhine State—a Category Five storm, the, the strongest storm uh, ever to make landfall on Myanmar. It hit Sitwe, the capital of Rakhine State, did a lot of damage in northern Rakhine uh, to internally displaced settlements, uh, to villages, uh, and very little aid has come to those settlements. And it really is the most marginalized population, as the population with the least coping strategies, as the population with no freedom of movement, the Rohingya were hit worse, both in terms of casualties, but also in terms of damage to their settlements and and, and prospects. Rakhine people also hit very, very badly by by that cyclone as well. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, it's a really terrible situation.
0: So just recently, as we heard up top, Chinese Foreign Minister Ching Gang was in Myanmar, met with Ming online. China initially come out quite strongly against the coup. So how should we see this visit? I mean, is that China recalibrating or just worried about its neighbours collapse?
1: So Qin was the highest level Chinese official to meet with Ming Hlaing since the coup. So this was definitely a sign that Beijing is re-engaging the regime to a certain extent. China was not happy about the coup, and it made that very clear to the regime. It called for the release of Aung San Suu Kyi. It called for negotiations. It called for a return to the previous situation, but that didn't happen. You know, China was caught off guard. It felt it had a very good relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi. It was moving ahead with big infrastructure investments in the country. Um, And now it feels that uh, that the Myanmar military, who it knows is – very, very suspicious of China, is now in full charge, at least of NAPIDOR and policy. And so China is not happy about this. That's clear from the fact that China has allowed the NLD-appointed ambassador of Myanmar in New York to retain his seat, jomo Tun. It's clear in the fact that China has allowed, uh, last December, the first ever Security Council resolution against Myanmar to pass. It didn't veto that. It abstained and got Russia to abstain as well. So, you know, China has shown its displeasure, but I think China also realizes that two, two and a half years on from the coup, it has to deal with the realities on the ground. It can't afford to remain disengaged for much longer. It worries that others will start to influence events uh, in Myanmar if Beijing does not. And so we've seen this process of re not just with the regime, but also with ethnic armed groups along the border, uh, some political forces as well. China is trying to have deeper relationships with everyone in Myanmar with the aim of being able to have greater influence there, basically.
0: Including with the unity go- national unity government or, or not?
1: There are contacts, but China is not a fan of the national unity government. The NUG has positioned itself as a very pro-American, pro-Western force. It has a liaison office in Washington. It's been less effective in building relationships in the region with Myanmar's neighbors, with ASEAN and others. This is not for want of trying always. Very often those countries are not particularly keen to have a relationship with the NUG either. But Beijing views the NUG as a very Western-oriented organization. And so, yeah, it's not very keen on engaging or, or giving oxygen to the NUG.
0: Richard, we'll come back in a moment to China when we talk about the West and prospects for something that's sort of more coherent internationally. But just before we do that, could we just talk about some of the other foreign powers involved? Let's start with Russia, which had been building ties to Myanmar even before the coup, those those deepened after the coup. Russia, really the only major power that's been keen to establish relations with Ming online and the, and the junta leaders. How's that relationship since the Ukraine war?
1: So after the Ukraine war, you know, Myanmar has continued to give full backing to Russia. Minong Hlaing has what he feels is a warm personal relationship with Defense Minister Shoigu. Minong Hlaing has traveled to Russia over the last decade, almost every year. It's a place he feels comfortable. It's a place he's sent thousands of Myanmar military officials to for training in, in academic subjects in military technical subjects. It's also a place where Myanmar has purchased an awful lot of weapons. Russia and China are the two places where the Myanmar military gets most of its uh, high-tech weapon systems. Um, So I think the hope for Min Ong had been that with an ally like Russia, he wouldn't need to worry about international diplomacy. He wouldn't need to worry too much about where ASEAN was positioned. He had a, a defender, a permanent member of the Security Council. But, you know, it turns out that Russia is consumed with other things and isn't in a position to spend what limited diplomatic capital it has on on Myanmar. At the same time, Russia's objectives in forging ties with Myanmar – you know, were really long-term objectives. Uh, it's about Russia wanting to project power into the Pacific, seeing Myanmar as potentially a key node in that, along with its uh, older allies of, of Vietnam and, uh, and India. And that's a dream that Russia has had for a long time, but it's a dream that's had to been put on hold by the Ukraine war. I mean, it can't focus on, uh, on the Pacific, when it's got bigger problems to, to deal with on its other flank. And so, you know, this remains a warm embrace of two pariah states, but one which hasn't really delivered anything tangible for either of them.
0: And from what I understand, Russia's even sort of trying to take
1: back some of its weapons
0: to use in Ukraine.
1: Is that, is that right? This is one of the most striking recent developments that Russia, which was Myanmar's largest supplier of tanks, of aircraft in the last few years, has been buying Military kit back from Myanmar. And the numbers of the scope of these purchases suggest that this is not all Myanmar kit, that Myanmar is acting as a conduit for the repurchase of these things. It's stuff like tank optics, which would allow Russia to field some of its older tanks that don't have modern optics. Uh, It's stuff like smart weapons. uh, It's stuff like artillery barrels, you know, things that Russia needs lots of for its current war and which it has sold lots of to countries in the region.
0: And so potentially countries selling stuff back to Russia, but through Myanmar so they can avoid sanctions?
1: That's what it looks like, yeah.
0: And um ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, the regional bloc, sort of traditionally seen as the body best positioned to move some sort of diplomatic process forward. Other foreign powers have sort of left it to ASEAN, hope that ASEAN would deal with the crisis. And there had been, what, some hope in the fact that Indonesia was chair of ASEAN this year. It's generally been among the more forward-leaning regional capitals, but in the end, what, Jakarta has chosen not to put much of its political capital into looking for a settlement.
1: You know, I think one of the challenges that ASEAN has is its traditional focus on consensus and on non-interference. And if you have a non-interference, consensus-based approach, it's going to be very hard to deal with a situation like Myanmar in your midst. But if the world is to take ASEAN centrality seriously, ASEAN has to step up and show that it can deal with these kinds of issues. So there has been pressure on ASEAN to do something. But I think, ultimately, Myanmar has not created enough of a problem for the region and beyond for, for ASEAN to feel that you know it really, really has to grapple with this. Myanmar has been a a diplomatic issue, but not a top-level one. ASEAN's other relationships with the US, with Europe, uh, have not been poisoned by its failure to really grapple with the Myanmar issue.
0: And that's in large part because Western governments, given the sort of divisions with Russia, and particularly given the competition with China, they don't want to alienate ASEAN countries over Myanmar, essentially.
1: Exactly. I mean, the geopolitics of the region, the US-China and the European-China tussles are not amenable to really putting pressure on this issue. ASEAN has concluded that a higher priority than resolving the Myanmar crisis is making sure that it doesn't create an ASEAN crisis. In other words, ASEAN doesn't want to split over the Myanmar issue. There are many different opinions within ASEAN on how to deal with Myanmar. Uh, Bangkok has a very different approach to Jakarta. And so I think the Indonesians have first and foremost been concerned to keep unity and keep consensus and not split the block over this issue. And, you know, when elections looked like they would be on this year, I think Indonesia felt that they didn't have the luxury of ignoring this and would have to really make sure that this didn't turn into a crisis on their watch. But as those elections have been pushed back into the distance, I think Jakarta's approach has been that they can probably ride this out uh, and hand over the baton to Laos at the end of the year. And, Foreign Minister Retno, I think she has a lot of experience in Myanmar, but she's also been burnt before. She tried to be one of the leading people. She was one of the leading voices in the region on the Rohingya issue in 2017-18. She felt that she was badly burnt uh, on her trips to Napidor, that that she didn't manage to get much traction. And I think, you know, she's reluctant to burn herself again by going to Napidor personally, to engaging with the regime and coming away as Hun Sen came away with nothing. You know, uh, the regime has showed a willingness to treat uh, Hun Sen with great disdain.
0: This is the um, the Cambodian leader sort of widely seen as the elder statesman of of ASEAN.
1: Exactly. And I mean, you know, if anyone was going to give Napidor an easy time, it's someone like Hun Sen. Given his background, given his own autocratic nature, you know he went in imagining that he could have a friendly chat with the generals and come away with some small concessions to show progress and they gave him nothing and you know treated him as he felt with great disdain. So if they were willing to do that to a relatively friendly head of state, then I think Indonesia worried that they would get burnt too. So, you know, ASEAN hasn't been able to achieve very much, but also no other country has a great idea about how to deal with this. It's not that, you know, there are lots of options available and ASEAN's failure is not to move forward with any of those. The reason that ASEAN has been given the task of leading uh, the response to this crisis is that nobody else wants that task. Nobody else has any good ideas. So it's been put on ASEAN's plate.
0: Could the recent Thai elections make a difference? So about a month ago, an opposition party, the Move Forward Party, in some ways unexpectedly, won the vote. Another opposition party came in second. Could that make a difference to Thailand's position toward Myanmar and sort of make ASEAN consensus easier to achieve?
1: The Thai elections could be quite significant for how ASEAN deals with uh, Myanmar. Of course, the biggest question hanging over the Thai elections is, will a liberal force actually be able to form a government? And we still don't know that, and we won't know until at least July. But it's not a sure thing, right? There's a lot of question marks hanging over that. But if there is a liberal government uh, in Bangkok, that's definitely a change of tone. It will change the diplomacy, I think, particularly Peter, the head of Move Forward, the winner of the the election. uh, If he was prime minister, you know, he has already said that he would do things vis-a-vis Myanmar very differently. So I think we could expect a more collaborative tone from Bangkok within ASEAN. They would move closer to the Indonesian position. It would make finding consensus that much easier. But I think on other questions, the relationship between the Thai military and the Myanmar military, that's not going to change. Thailand's security posture, that's not going to change. That's not going to be run by any civilian prime minister. That's going to be run by the Thai military.
0: And uh, Western governments, Western capitals, it's fair to say that although there was quite a tough response uh, initially, more sanctions on some of the generals, strong condemnation, the crisis, which arguably was never that high up on the agenda, has sort of slipped further down given the Ukraine war and
1: competition with China. I think that's right. Right. Generally, Myanmar has been a very low priority in Western capitals, and that's a great pity. You know what the West could do is what they did in the 1990s and 2000s, which was make Myanmar an issue of importance in their other bilateral relationships. You know that's not a recipe for necessarily solving the Myanmar crisis, but it is a way to build a greater coalition with more backbone, with more willingness to push Myanmar harder. It makes it harder for ASEAN to adopt a sort of lowest common denominator approach. In other words, the costs to the Myanmar regime of their diplomatic intransigence will be felt more keenly, and I think that's really important, but that that hasn't happened. And you're right, it's because it's not a a high priority in in Western capitals.
0: And in in some ways, the reticence toward pushing ASEAN that Western capitals feel because of the competition with Russia, the competition with China, that's also allowed countries like Japan and India, generally friendly countries towards the US, also allowed them to have a policy towards Myanmar of self-interested engagement, I guess. And, And in that sense, too, the cost for the regime isn't as high as it could be.
1: Absolutely. I mean, India has been one of the strongest backers of the regime on the Security Council during its tenure as a non-permanent member. It's very clear what India is doing. India worries that if it's not present in a meaningful way in Myanmar, that it cedes ground to China. And so it's the India-China competition, which means that India feels it has to have good, close relations with the Myanmar regime. And there's no constraints on that. You know, India is not being asked difficult questions in the Quad about why you're doing this, you know, supporting a heinous military regime. There is no diplomatic cost to India of that approach. And frankly, if countries in the West wanted to impose diplomatic costs on India, they have other priorities there as well. It's relationship with Russia, it's soil trade, uh, all of the other things that we know. It's not going to be Myanmar that's going to be the main talking point. And for Japan, I mean, they've also, you know, are worried about the geopolitics, worried about the competition with China, worried about their long-term business investments in Myanmar. And they've also been engaged, not to the extent of India, but certainly a self-interested and geopolitically driven policy approach.
0: I mean, in some ways, Richard, as you talked about, it's easy to blame as we often do, I mean, not only in Myanmar, the places too, sort of recent changes in global affairs, the Ukraine war, tensions between the West and China that we talked about, and the Asian geopolitics that, that you've talked about. It's easy to blame those for the gridlock. But on the other hand, I mean, even were there more attention to Myanmar? I mean, is it clear that that would have unblocked diplomatic efforts? Myanmar's military leaders have always seemed sort of intransigent and maybe not completely, but, but certainly quite impervious to outside influence.
1: I mean, we can't draw any straight lines from the kind of diplomatic pressure that could be brought to bear and a resolution to the crisis. That's incredibly difficult. Those lines will never be straight. But I think there are a number of things. I mean, one is that it is incumbent on countries when faced with such heinous violence from a regime to call that out, to not condone it through engagement. And it's also important for the people of Myanmar that they see some solidarity from the world that they see countries, you know, standing up for principles. And those things are important, and, and they count beyond just moral principle. They count in politics, they count in geopolitics, and they will count uh, in the future as well. And so I think that is a great, a great pity that there has not been more uh, solidarity uh, with the Myanmar population and more coherence in calling out the regime for what it is.
0: And Richard, even beyond those very compelling arguments, and presumably there are also sort of more immediate strategic implications about why Myanmar's collapse, you know, the collapse of a country that borders several other important Asian countries, why that serves nobody's interests. In principle, that also means the crisis merits being a bit higher on sort of everyone's priorities list.
1: You know, I think I will, I'll come to that. I think one other point to make about the world having a more coherent approach is that this is not one of those global situations where different powerful countries have radically different views. This is not Syria. This is not Congo. This is a country where none of the neighbours wants war, where none of the neighbours has an interest in instability. You know, China wants there to be a resolution to this political crisis. The West wants there to be a resolution. ASEAN wants there to be a resolution. Of course, each of those blocks has different priorities, different ways of approaching the problem. But it's not as if some of these countries, you know, were supporting a non-state group against the national military. It's not a proxy war. And that makes it theoretically more easy to develop uh, international consensus on. And I think the risk of not having greater action is that it's very short-sighted to believe that because Myanmar's problems have mainly remained within Myanmar so far, that they will continue to be so. You know, there are one and a half million newly displaced people within Myanmar's borders. There have been some refugee outflows, but not of the scale that people were really initially concerned about. But I think we should think about What happens to a country that implodes in the heart of Asia? You know, that will keep throwing out different kinds of problems. We can think about the illicit economy, about the surge in scam centres, the surge in drug production that affects the region and beyond. I think we should think about what it means for millions of children in Myanmar who have not been vaccinated against childhood diseases. You know, what does it mean for combating those diseases regionally and globally that now you have this huge number of children who have not been vaccinated? What does it mean that a country Country that has had very serious multi-drug resistance tuberculosis its health system has collapsed you know that's going to create issues not only in Myanmar but beyond uh, so all of these things will have ramifications they just haven't been felt necessarily as strongly as some people were concerned about in the first two years but I think it's very short-sighted to imagine that because Myanmar has caused limited manageable problems for the region so far that that will continue to be the case
0: Richard thanks uh, so much for coming on
1: Thank you
0: very much. Hold your fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Myanmar on our website crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at crisisgroup. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch. Podcast at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly atwood at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns. If you like the show. Please do say something nice about us wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five star rating and I very much hope that you'll join us again next week.